0: To the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 97. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at the 2 on today's episode, we're reflecting on our experiences at SBL, a biblical studies conference recently, the Society of Biblical Literature and the American Academy of Religion. These are conferences that take place every November. For those like me, it's our favorite time of the year. I feel like a kid in candy shop at these conferences. There's a number of papers that are being read. People are working on various projects, articles that they hope to publish, book chapters, these sorts of things, and publishers show up and display all the new books and chat with authors About prospective book projects and these sorts of things. It's just a wonderful time. And in the midst of it, there's a lot of reconnecting with people we all went to school with, people that we admire, look up to, that we have read their books, for example. It's just a wonderful time. There's a lot of receptions. I like to host one in particular. This year, of course, being in the midst of the pandemic, we had to do it partly virtually, partly in person. Last year, the event was strictly virtual, which was a disappointment for many of us who love being there in person. But in this episode, what we wanna do is we wanna talk about our experiences uh, of participating in this hybrid format of SBL, talk about the papers we presented and some of the interesting things that we experienced. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Grace Emmett, Brandon Hurlburt, Dr. Chris Porter, Dr. Logan Williams, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So how about we begin by hearing about the papers that you all gave? I I did not give a paper this year. I was kind of a late decide for even going to SBL. I was there in person in San Antonio. What what papers did you all present and uh, what were some of the arguments that you guys were making?
1: Logan here. I gave a paper in the Johannine literature section, which was really fun uh, and kind of rogue for me because I'm not really a gospel scholar. uh, So it was a good kind of step into that. Uh, I gave a a presentation on the uh, kind of two endings of John, the ending of John at the end of chapter 20 and the other John uh, ending at the end of chapter 21, uh, which are referred to as the colophons uh, of the fourth gospel. The first one says... Uh, There are many other things that Jesus did, but these things are written uh, so that you might believe and have life in his name. And the second one says there are many other signs that Jesus did, but if they were all written down, you know, there'd be too many books for the world to contain. Uh, And I looked at uh, the reception uh, of those colophons. Uh, In particular, there's a thesis uh, that's really popular amongst New Testament scholars that the Gospels were all written in competition with one another, both canonical and non-canonical or in francis watson's words he argues that each attempt to write the gospel um is an attempt to give you know the definitive picture of who jesus is uh in a way that contradicts uh and is meant to displace all other gospel accounts uh and i find i'm i'm incredibly skeptical of this thesis i think it's uh kind of part and parcel of uh a tendency in New Testament studies to take any assertions of difference as assertions of competition, uh, which is a uh, tendency that we've received since the dawn of modern biblical studies with FC Bauer, who insisted that there was a competition between Petrine Christianity and Pauline Christianity. And that uh, tendency to read competition into texts um, or read sectarianism into texts uh, is uh, just something that we've inherited um, from, Uh, 19th century Germany, uh, and which I I don't think uh, has a lot of compelling evidence uh, uh, for it. So uh, I took a stab at at trying to undermine this kind of broader tendency in gospel scholarship in some parts of gospel scholarship to see um, all the gospels as competitive uh, by looking at the reception of the Johannine colophons. Uh, And the way that those colophons are received uh, is to justify the production of what I would call bibliographic expansion, the colophons are used to justify the fact that we have four gospels. Uh, the colophons are used to justify the production of new gospels altogether. Uh, and so, uh, early Christians used the, the colophons to negotiate the kind of pluriform uh, gospel, the fourfold gospel, uh, and to produce non-canonical works altogether. Uh, so, I, I argued that you know the recep- the reception in early Christianity should kind of put a question mark over the notion that uh, the endings of John. Uh, are meant to displace or um, assert the authority of the gospel over against all other gospels, past and future, which uh, is a thesis recently espoused uh, by some. So, yeah, that's it. It was fun.
2: I gave a paper in the Bible and Film uh, session, and I was looking at the film First Reformed, uh, which, if you haven't seen it, uh, is definitely worth a watch, came out in 2017. I was pairing that with Romans 8, uh, 18 to 25, the section where Paul is talking about. Uh, creation's groaning and humanity joining in with that groaning so I was wanting to pair the two together and think about how we can read one through the other um drawing on some work by Larry Kreitzer who's got this phrase where he talks about reversing the hermeneutical flow so the idea of being how can we read biblical text or through a new lens how can that change our perspective on how we understand the text how can we learn more about it through film or um fiction normally and um so I was particularly thinking about uh, in that film one of the real themes is to do with climate grief so sort of what does it mean to process the reality of climate breakdown and to feel the weight of that to feel the sadness of that so I was thinking about drawing that out a bit more in the Romans text thinking about groaning along the lines of grief and also uh Paul says in 822 he, he sort of says we know that and goes on to talk about how we all know uh creation's groaning like this is a self-evident thing uh, and something that the film does really well is to sort of point out the fact that there's so many people who deny the reality of climate breakdown whether that's businesses or individuals and so I thought that was quite interesting thinking about um like do we all know that <laughs> i.e climate change um are there people that choose not to know that reality and who resist that and Paul kind of assumes that everyone is on board with his um what he's sharing in that in that text. And I suppose I was wondering what does it mean for people to resist that that knowledge that's presumed to be self-evident. I think for many of us it feels like that this is just such an obvious reality and we kind of have to respond to that but clearly there's so many businesses and um, institutions and individuals that don't. So what what might Paul's words be for, for those who choose not to know? Um, and how do we encourage them to act differently? So, yeah, had fun pairing the two of those together. And, um, yeah, again, if you haven't seen that film, do watch it because it is excellent.
3: I actually presented at IBR, the Institute for Biblical Research, uh, which is kind of like the, um, it's like the confessional counterpart of SBL. It's fun. It's a bit smaller crowd. So I presented for the biblical violence session. It's a it's a three-year kind of fo- uh, research group, and each year they take a different kind of a, approach or or, or theme uh, to explore violence in the Bible. Uh, so last year was speech act theory, and this year was humor. Uh, so I presented a paper called Drowning Jonah in a Thousand Genres. Uh, ba- basically, the, the argument was that I find humor to be really helpful to help us understand violence, but not all the time. And I see a, a, a good, you know, kind of trope in the literature on biblical texts that treats, you know, some stories and Jonah in particular, as kind of this, this satire or this joke or this comedy. And so it ends up, they put a lot of genre, um, Categories on the text that 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 I think are appropriate to do, uh, but i I never found the the Jonah one quite um uh, convincing, namely because of the early reception in both Jewish uh, and Christian writers, um you know early church fathers and the, and the rabbis. they never they didn't really see Jonah as funny. And maybe there would be some humor within the book, but to designate the entire book of Jonah as a satire, a comedy, a whatever, what, what have you, uh, always felt a bit foreign. And actually what ends up happening is that the joke of Jonah becomes this kind of like satirical caricature of a Israelite prophet. And so the, the real humor is making fun of Jonah and looking and, and you know, the joke is on this ultra nationalistic ideology that lurks behind Jonah. And actually, these kind of portrayals can become really anti-Semitic very quickly. Um, Not all of of them are, but they can very easily become uh, anti-Semitic. And so, part of my paper was trying to, uh, for this research group, um, it was trying to kind of gently push back and say, you know what, we should be really careful with how we think about humor, uh, because, you know, trying to uh, apply some of the insights of modern genre theory to uh, this approach and to say, really, you know, humor is a very subjective category, at, like genre, and it can be useful. But um, if we just try, if it just becomes the, the thing that is driving the interpretation, uh, if it becomes, you know, the the what I call the you know totalizing effects of genre, then actually it can it ends up being not as illuminating as we might think. And so part of what I try to do in the paper was to show how <clears throat> by not centering humor uh within the interpretation, we can actually find really, really illuminating and, and deeply meaningful uh readings uh, you know that deal with um <clears throat> that deal with Jonah's sacrifice of himself to deals with you know the question of forgiveness uh that deals with trying to understand how you know one might read this within exile um the story with an exile trying to trying to wrestle with when the god of the oppressed forgives the oppressor you know these are like really serious questions that i think jonah can wrestle with in a really engaging way but if we just say that it's a satire and that becomes all of what we interpret it as we actually lose all of these really rich kind of uh, dialogues and conversations. Um, and so I just thought, you know, humor is really helpful. I've written about it. I've, I I love using humor as a, as a good insight uh, into the biblical text, but I just think it becomes a problem when it becomes the only thing we say uh, about a biblical text. And I think when it comes to violence within scripture, some of the ways people have tried to get around some, some different texts has been like, oh, well, it's just a big joke or just satire or it's, you know, it's just being funny. And you go, that's been, that doesn't really help anyone. And in, in certain cases like Jonah, it actually can contribute to the violence by becoming, you know, an anti-Semitic interpretation. Uh, and so, yeah, that, that, that was basically my paper in
4: short. <laughs> I presented two papers this year uh one was a paper actually on jonah as well um which was looking at the reception of jonah in uh the mark and calming of the storm narrative and really questioning whether or not an audience would actually have understood the calming of the storm as a Jonah-like, uh typology or jonah Ache pattern because a lot of the content of the coming of the storm has thematic parallels with uh, that of Jonah, like Jesus going down into the boat to go to sleep. Uh, There's a big storm. The sailors are afraid and things like that, but it actually doesn't um, have a huge number of uh, tight textual overlaps. It just simply has the thematic parallels. And it's only when you get right to the end of the, the narrative that, um, mark includes this cognate accusative uh, pattern uh, that the sailors uh, feared a great fear Uh, and so it's only when you get to that point that there is this quite a tight textual overlap between the two and yeah it's it's one of those things that because there is such a high degree of difference there i'm not sure that any of the audience for whom uh, this text would have come come across in in its early period where they probably didn't have Texts themselves; they only had, uh, you know, oral traditions, or they may, may have had a, te- a shared text. Whether or not they would actually pick up on that resonance, or or whether it would have been lost for them. Uh, so I, I looked at um, leveraging some of the work that I've done in the past in psychology of memory, um, and thinking about cognitive memory priming, and it was interesting. I got some good pushback on that, um, and uh, thinking about. Questions about the ideal audience. Um, indeed, the ideal audience probably could. Uh, you know, if Mark, uh, there's a, there's an argument to be made that Mark may have actually intended for his audience to pick up on it, but he just did a really poor job. Uh, and so perhaps uh, it, the question isn't so much about uh, whether or not the audience could pick up on it, but how good a job the author can actually do at embedding those sort of uh, keys to unlock the memory in. Uh, and then the other paper I, I presented was. Uh, a, Part of a book I'm writing. Um, it's, it was a short introduction to what we call prototypicality, uh, which is the the way that uh, social groups uh, think about themselves. So ha- how do how do they know what is a typical or a, a an ideal member of their group, uh, and ha- how do then do they relate that to other people and in, in the interactive sense be able to compare social groups with one another. Um, so that they're the two I, I presented um so it was a bit weird this year uh because half of the the groups that i would normally be involved with and engaged with were actually meeting in person uh, but a lot of the people who were actually there in person weren't also coming online or were coming online from the middle of a book hall or something like that
0: yeah that was one of the weird features about this year was doing it hybrid and that's something i wanted to Hear from each of you about your experience of uh, doing SBL in this in this way. I know for me personally, because I was in San Antonio, and sad to be the only two cities uh, member there in person without all of you. But I sort of just decided that I wasn't going to do any of the virtual uh events. Cause I just thought oh, I'm flying out there. I might as well just do all the in-person stuff that I can do. So I felt like I had a completely different experience from all of you, not, not just because I didn't do it virtually, but like I didn't hear any of the stuff that you all heard, you know. Um and so it almost kind of seemed like there were you know, two SBLs or two AARs kind of taking place like simultaneously, uh, and you all experienced something totally different than I did. What were some of the the things that you all experienced? Some of the thoughts you had about like this unique way of, of doing
2: SBL. Can I be a total pedant? And I think the the technical branding this year was it was dual format, not hybrid, which I think is actually exactly that, like what you touched on. Um, but it did feel a bit like two separate conferences because it sort of was in a way. So as I was attending virtually, so that meant that I got access to loads and loads of sessions happening online, but wasn't accessing any of the papers that had been given in person. As somebody going in person, you could have the choice to go and dial into a virtual session, obviously from your room or whatever. But in reality, as you, as you said, John probably wanted to make the most of being there in person. So I think it, it felt like a, a bit of a compromise when they realised Lots of people sort of wanted to have a virtual component. um, And there were good reasons, I think, for not turning it into a proper hybrid conference. Um, But the reality of that is that it did have this slightly um, divided feel to it, I think. Um, And it'll be interesting to see what happens next year, whether they can sort of redesign it as a proper hybrid format or not, or whether there's always going to be that slightly split component there.
0: Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned that because I did go to a couple of sessions where we had people zoom in and present uh, live. Um, They had some uh, technical difficulties. They were supposed to present a, a recording but because of some weird you know glitches that were happening they just said okay you're already here on zoom for the question and answer time so why don't you just like read your paper now that happened a couple of times actually in different sessions that were. so it did feel hybrid to me i i i guess i missed the language of dual format but it did feel hybrid to me because almost every session i went to had some
4: online component to it That's really interesting because, as a um, as a session host, we were told that that wasn't actually possible, uh, that we weren't that that was verboten, completely verboten, uh, that uh, we should not even entertain the possibility of being able to do that, Um, and so we actually had to shift sessions online that and cancel sessions that would have otherwise been hybrid. I personally enjoy the online. I just the the
3: online kind of bits. they really nice because you can just jump in and out of session and within SBL, when you're in person, it's super awkward because everyone walks into your paper and then they all walk out. And so if, you know, they all walk in for someone else's paper and then you are like, oh, the next paper is, and then literally everyone, but like four people in the room, get up and leave. And you're like, this sucks. Uh, whereas on Zoom, you can just like you know you're just hanging out and like honestly, I'm just you know don't even look at Zoom. I'm just reading my paper, so I can't really see. So it's just fun, and I think the bar for Zoom like presentations are just a bit lowered. And I think it's nice to be able to jump in and out of sessions really easily without the awkward like I hate you and and this session and leave you know. And so it, it allowed me to like go to like things I wouldn't normally have gone to. Um, and you don't have to make the like mad, you know mild dash between sessions. You know you're not limited by time or space. Sounds like a really cool uh,
4: kind of strap line for SBL virtual. on on the flip side from down under, uh, we're limited by time. SBL this year was from uh, two a m to eleven thirty am, which is uh, rather brutal. and with it with it being online, it means that you don't get away for it. So it means that you don't actually have all of the other things in life stop, which, you know, for me means how I've, I've got, I've got kids and they need to get to school. Um, I was doing sessions. I was doing question and answer on sessions in the car, driving the kids to school. Um, so it, it, I reckon it, it's one of those ones that it, it is of benefit having it online, but it does really feel like it's, it becomes a bit of a two-tier economy um, of those who are able to make all sessions because of the time zones and other commitments. And then those who, are, you know, aren't unable aren't to actually engage fully because of that.
3: Yeah. And, and, and even, you know, just normal things like I need, you need to cook food. You need to eat dinner. You know, it's nice that you can listen to a paper while you cook dinner or whatever, but obviously you're not going to be able to pay attention as well as if you were just single focus. So I felt like with some of the papers you, you know, I listened to was like, what's happening. I've been cooking dinner. I don't know. Like what I, like I want to ask a question, but like, I want, I don't want to just sound like an
1: idiot because they've answered it and I just wasn't paying
3: attention.
1: <laughs> Maybe this is not just me. I have a really hard time focusing in conference sessions because I just I can't move I have to sit in one place and like stare and listen and I actually find that I have a I'm I'm able to listen and comprehend a lot better when I'm like moving around making tea you know like or making food or whatever or like you know what going on a walk inside or 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 just moving about outside or like you know etc and having having that space where I'm kind of able to do other things while i'm listening actually really helps me comprehend things so i don't i don't know about other people but like i remember virtual sessions way more than i remember in-person sessions which is kind of a sad fact but it has yeah so i think some people focus differently and i think the virtual sessions do facilitate an, an ability to engage with sessions kind of with more comprehension.
0: I, I went to a couple of sessions that I really enjoyed, but the thing that I found this year was I just really wanted to catch up with people and, and hang out. I, I did a lot more hanging out than I probably normally do. I think because we didn't have it in-person last year, it's like, I you know I'd see somebody like let's go to lunch let's go to dinner or let's go grab drinks like whatever it's just like I did a lot more of that than um than than paper sessions I mean I did I did of course go to a number of sessions some some of which I really enjoyed but for me it just felt more like this is the year of catch up you know
2: I think I missed that a lot after present- presenting my paper in particular because um you know you have your sort of ten minute Q and A but it was that informal chats that you have afterwards where you're just sort of milling around and then you kind of spin ideas off people um that is really hard to replicate in a virtual format so I I missed that and it felt a bit flat afterwards I think um even though I felt like it had gone quite well on the whole and had good questions but just that sort of um yeah kind of more chill debriefing time that you have is sort of lost um so definitely missed that and also for me it it definitely felt like an add-on you know I didn't take three days off work and solidly sit on zoom say was listening to it while working on other stuff uh realized at one point I was late for a meeting because <laughs> I'd got distracted with something um, so it's very much like just squeezing it in to kind of um spend the time I think one of the upsides was um quite a lot of people pre-recorded their papers even if they then presented them kind of live as well virtually um so it's quite fun having the chance to catch up with some of that later having gone through the schedule as as you always do and thinking oh my gosh there's like 10 sessions at the same time but I want to get to you but I can't um and then having the ability to listen to some of those later I think that's been quite a nice feature of this year um so I've enjoyed doing that but yeah uh pros and cons for sure pros and cons
0: yeah and and because of the the pandemic you know probably probably 40 percent of you know people who normally show up were there and and public publishers even you know they they um didn't send all their books uh most a lot of them only had displays a lot of publishers didn't show up it really was kind of a small book stall which of course is normally like a city trying to navigate your way around is a little difficult sometimes but in addition to that kind of publishers not bringing their books and everything, they, a lot of them didn't have any receptions at all. Uh, and so that was kind of the thing for me is like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do Sunday night. I don't know what I'm supposed to do Monday night. Cause I you know normally have this routine of where, where I know where I am, you know, each night of the conference. Cause I always go to the certain receptions. And there's so many on offer this year. Of course there, there wasn't, we didn't even do our, our, our beer event, our SBL, We didn't do our, our, our beer event this year. Cause last time uh, San Antonio was a difficult place to find a venue that would host a, a beer event, just the teetotaling uh, nature of Texas. Um, but then additionally, of course, with COVID, it's like, who's also going to want a bunch of randos right now, you know, showing up at their facility to drink beer. So the the lack of receptions was, a, was an interesting uh, dynamic for those of us who were who were in person. Um, but of course, we you know sort of had impromptu receptions in the sense of like let's all go to yard house you know that kind of thing but uh definitely definitely looking forward to denver where all of those things can be ameliorated hopefully we're all together that's
3: that's my deep deep prayer yeah i felt like l- last year as you know like year 1 of the pandemic oh, goodness um it was this was all still kind of new and like we were all like Happy that it wasn't going on, and you know we were all like, "Good, we can still do a conference. How can we make the most of it?" And I felt like there was a lot more kind of camaraderie and a lot more trying to recreate social events on Zoom, even if they were like, "We know this is bad. We know we're all zoomed out. We can at least try this year." That I didn't feel like there was very anything. You know, I know Brain Collective. know did a virtual coffee line and stuff but like it wasn't it it didn't feel like the same type of like all right who's gonna start a zoom call you know like come on let's like all hang out and like chat it it felt a bit like piecemeal felt a bit uh different than it did last year last year it felt like we were doing our best and this year felt like we've given up (laughs) Mm -hmm. trying to do this the the difficulty too with these kinds of like
0: online receptions is that like with zoom it's like we can't really break out i mean i guess you can make a breakout room but you can't really have like these little side discussions that you normally would you know it's like it, it's like all eyes are on the one person talking you know at the, in that moment and so it's kind of like it's hard to like really replicate the experience of being at a reception when you're just kind of like bumping into people and and your little circle of people that you're chatting with starts to grow as people you know, pop in or you break away and chat further with somebody else. I mean, that can't be replicated and that's just unfortunate.
4: I feel like there's also that Zoom fatigue, like who actually wants to start yet another Zoom session after you've been on Zoom 24 hours a day for the last two years, it uh, feels like sometimes. But um, I think I think one big part that I, I really miss is that those Bits after sessions, or the bits in the reception where you catch up with people who came and heard your paper, and or you heard someone else's paper, and you want to go talk to them, and and not just the the catch up, but the the ideas and the the engagement that actually comes out of that. Uh, there's a whole bunch of studies that have been done actually prior to the pandemic uh, about video conferencing and how much work actually gets done in the conference room, you know, the ostensible meeting that you've flown halfway across the world for. Uh, versus how much work actually gets done by everyone else who is in the co- in the corridors it's all of those informal interactions which actually give uh them a lot of a lot of the fruit of a conference and i think I, I miss that the most um not being able to just really you know explore things that you wouldn't necessarily be able to otherwise or being forced to do it within a you know we've got three minutes before the next session starts sort of thing
3: yeah and 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 just like in terms of I mean, I know this happens normally during SBL when you know there's like, oh, is it are there any questions? And like you're like, you want to ask a question because you have a question, but you're trying to articulate it well so you don't sound like an idiot. And then you don't, you don't, you don't say anything because well, you don't want to sound like an idiot. Uh, but you're right, you can go up afterwards after you've had five or ten minutes, you've written it down, you're like, you have a good question and you actually genuinely want to know. It's not like a gotcha kind of thing. Um and then you can actually have a good conversation, and maybe it goes super well, and you're like, "Hey, let's let's chat more about this over coffee." Like those kind of interactions, Chris, I think is 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 what I think we all miss. Um, but I found that on the online format was, you know, you have a good question, you you want to ask something, or you want to talk more about it, and you're just like, "I have thirty sec," I you know, I have fifteen seconds to like really formulate a good question without sounding stupid. Uh, and you know, half the time I just like I wouldn't ask a question, and then you moved on, and you're like, oh, I I can't really message that person because they've set up the Zoom room, so there's no messaging because they're fascists or something like that. Um, <laughs> and and so yeah, you you've missed that opportunity, and there's no there's nothing else to you know engage with. So you, either you have to like email them in like a weird weird way, um, or you just, you just don't really get to ask a question. And so I, I really miss that, that kind of follow up, you know, in the halls, not in the actual
4: uh, paper. I, I feel like it, um it leads to the, the statement, not a question thing a lot more as well. I've saw that a huge number of times this year. Um, people just start with this rambly sort of question because i haven't had any time to formulate it and it doesn't actually end up as a question it ends up as here's my statement of fact uh what you're going to do with it i had the suspicion that
1: um maybe the virtual session would or the virtual format of sbl would kind of tone down a lot of the uh discriminatory sexist etc power dynamics Otherwise known as bullshit. Yeah, which is of course to normal part of SBL. And but during one paper in particular, uh, there was uh, a woman who gave a paper, and she uh, wrote something like Romans 16.2 instead of Romans 1622 on one of her slides. It was a massively inconsequential mistake. Like there wasn't there weren't massive points being made off of it. It was just like one of many things in the slide. And multiple men in the chat were like, no, it's Romans sixteen twenty two, 22, Romans 16, um, And it was kind of frustrating to see, like, it's not necessarily that, you know, of course, yeah, it was a mistake, but of course you don't see those kinds of corrections happening in the chat when a male makes a mistake in their slide or even in the title of their paper. Like there was another, there was another uh, uh, male who gave a paper uh, at SBL who literally had the wrong text in his title and no one said anything. Um, so, you know, one must wonder um, if this asymmetry is predicated upon an asymmetry or a, a difference in, in sex. And uh, it was just frustrating to see that. And uh, uh, it, was, it was brought up by someone else on the panel, actually, which I, which I really appreciated. But um, it was just it felt weird to feel like, oh, wait, yes. Sexism is also clearly playing out in the virtual sessions as well, in their kind of own way. And now we're like using the chat function to basically interrupt a woman woman presenting uh, and make uh, minor tedious corrections. And then after that, basically her paper was engaged in really, in just like absurdly critical ways, like questioning, oh, is this even relevant to the subject matter? Uh, you know, I don't get what this is about. Um, and of course, it was actually incredibly relevant, um, but wasn't really stoked about about witnessing those dynamics. Um, but I am glad that they were uh, brought up uh, in the session.
2: I wonder if there's something in that actually is a kind of broader point. Um- Every now and then I sort of step back and think about how weird academic conferences are. Like when I explain this as a concept and, this, and talk about giving a paper and they're like, what does that mean? I'm like, well, it normally means to actually just literally stand and read something that I've pre-written. They're like, that's super weird. It's like, yeah, I would never give a presentation at work that way. <laughs> I would never stand and read a script out. But for some reason, we've like got into this habit where that's what we do in these spaces. Um, and that's something I've always struggled with is, is I need time to like process either what I've heard and then think about a question afterwards or I need time to think about people's questions before coming back to them and that kind of on the spot mode I think works for some people but definitely not for everyone and I'd love to see us kind of shake up really how we do these sorts of presentations there's no reason why we should stand in front of people and just read out a paper all of the time um, and I think that's true for Q&A as well it'd be really cool to have context where we like peer review questions and like do that in groups first and then come back to the speaker. Obviously all of this like takes more time, but I don't know whether there's something in having done it in two different formats that can make us look at the way we normally do it in a different way. and think about, can we actually construct this space differently? We don't have to just keep doing the same thing again and again.
0: Yeah, it kind of reminds me of this website that I use um, when I've been teaching during COVID um, called Slido, which is basically a way for people to write their questions. And then you can kind of like vote on everyone's questions and uptick them. I don't know that SBL would incorporate that, but it sort of reminds me of that. It's, it's, a, it's a, not exactly peer review, but it's, I guess, an approximation towards peer review where like the questions that float to the top are the ones that people are like, yes, ask that question. I don't know, just a, just a thought
3: yeah with with you know a lot of the online uh presentations it it does seem that there was m- m- more people used you know visual aids you know a, a powerpoint or some kind of presentation of video uh they use that more online than i've experienced in person and i felt like that is a good you know a, a good a good mode that i hope i hope continues when it does return in person that people actually do more than just sit up you know stand up there and read a
4: paper that they actually kind of engage it a bit in, in a bit different way. Grace's paper had clips from the from the movie that she was engaging with and actually had was was able to, to demonstrate the parts that um that she really wanted to dive into and I, I found it found that really interesting because a few years ago I gave a paper for AAR engaging with ghosts in the Shell and um I actually had to use uh gifs with subtitles because there wasn't any audio capability in the room we couldn't show uh video full motion video with audio because there weren't any speakers uh and i know for other sessions i've been in if you want to have a powerpoint or if you want to have anything else like that then uh, basically the you have to stump up money in order to be able to get the conference venue to be able to provide av gear uh, and therefore, it has to—you know—you have to have more than one person presenting in that form and and stuff like that. So there is, a, I think, a great benefit in that. And but having being able to to engage in those different ways, um, I think it is something that we it would be really good for us to bring across. Um, I know certainly for the one of the groups I'm part of, we pre-distribute papers and instead have fifteen-minute discussions on the pre-distributed paper, which means that you can actually have a far greater uh, engagement with uh, what you've worked, worked on. Uh, and also, you know, do things like a few years ago, I sent around a, what ended up being a 9,000 word paper because I didn't actually check the workout.
3: <laughs> that That's nothing, man. In IBR, they pre-circulate the papers and I don't expect anyone to read that before the session, but some dude Sent an eighty-two page paper to this pre-circulated thing. Now, so now, now, so to his credit, in his time allotted, he did somewhat—emphasis on the somewhat—convey uh, these eighty-two pages of information in one form or another. So, I, 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 I tip my hat to him because. That was impressive, but 82 pages is long. So 9,000 words is nothing to, compared to that. Well, what were some of the highlights that you all had
0: from your uh, experience uh, of doing SBL online? I know for for being there in person, I think the 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 two standouts for me uh, were the um, was the session on methian posteriority the idea that maybe matthew used luke as opposed to luke using matthew that was a lot of fun because it's not a, a a position that i had actually given much uh thought to and even much credibility to and wasn't persuaded by the end of it but it was just interesting to hear people who were passionate about it uh give give some really entertaining presentations and then mark Goodaker responded and you know it's full of kind of wit and humor and really good insight. So it was, that was a, a wonderful um, session to be at. And, uh, and then another one was uh, Sandy Richter gave the um, IBR plenary lecture on, on Friday night before the IBR reception. And her talk was really fascinating. It was on dating um, Deuteronomy based upon the economy present within Deuteronomy. And she was able to kind of rule out, you know, kind of a post-exilic and and even a um, monarchic origin to Deuteronomy based upon the economy presented within Deuteronomy. And she contended for a kind of not quite mosaic uh, dating, but but uh, certainly pre-monarchic uh, dating. It was a very fascinating presentation because it was strictly on the grounds of of economy and and archaeology and and these sorts of things. Just really really interesting, and I I can't really do it uh, more justice than that. Except to say that if you can get a, a hold of her her work, um, she has a lot of interesting things to say about that. There was a response to by uh, Roger Nam and and another another guy, an archaeologist. Roger Nam's response, he's he's at Emory, was really fascinating. Just kind of talking about the importance of uh, kind of thinking about economics in the Bible more broadly made really, I thought, zinger of a comment that just makes so much sense uh, about, you know, the way that, like, for example, the um, prosperity gospel takes the language of blessing, you know, and abundance that's associated with that and kind of applies it in this kind of capitalistic context that we live in. And just thinking about the agrarian economic context in which these blessings are, are, are being pronounced and really kind of, you know, um, thinking about the difference that that, that, that makes. And I, I just thought that was a, a, a fabulous comment.
1: What, what were some things that stood out for you all in your experience uh, with SPL versus? actually. Canada Moss gave a paper on uh, in, in the Pauline session on the use of enslaved secretaries um, in the letter writing process. So what she argues is that uh, enslaved workers uh, and secretaries, are, and sometimes they were often both, uh, had a, a deep participation in the construction and content of, of a letter. So if they were just penning a letter that somebody else was dictating, they would also, if I remember correctly, they would also have a, a, a um, a part in editing um, editing that letter as well. Uh, and so um, she used uh, that research, uh, research that's really never been brought into um, the sphere of, of Pauline studies, to argue that we've kind of synthetically constructed this idea of Paul the author, right? Or even the idea of Paul's letters uh, is engaged in a kind of pr- uh, a process of erasure whereby we erase the participation of his sometimes named probably enslaved secretaries who help write his letters and he says he names them sometimes at the end, the end of Romans for example or at the beginning of other letters uh and it occurs both in the in the House the the undisputed paulines and also in the disputed paulines and the pastoral letters etc where an a worker is named at the beginning um who's who's participating in the letter writing we also see this happening in Galatians where we know there was a secretary writing his letter because at some point at the end he says oh I write this with my own hand which insinuates that he wasn't writing the rest of it with his own hand and so Canada drew out the implications for our field you know exploring what what would it look like to take seriously the fact that a lot of these are not single authored works uh, and maybe that the content of these uh, change and also there's a lot of theological reflections um, that we'd have to deal with regarding the fact that a lot of our New Testament documents were probably produced with the use of enslaved workers. And, you know, what does that mean theologically? Um, she kind of uh, just set up that question really well. I really enjoyed that paper. It was really challenging, but really good.
2: I, um, I didn't actually catch this live, but this was a, a great pre-record that I found later. Um, Jill Hicks uh, recorded a great paper about the museum of the Bible, um, anyone not familiar, that's a um, fairly new museum in Washington, DC that's sort of very close to the White House. Um and uh it was really fascinating. She's done quite a lot of work on the museum already and is just about to uh publish a book. I think it's co-edited with Kevin Concannon uh, about the museum. And she was looking at how we could use the museum as a sort of lens for looking back at I think she said it was How does she describe it? A lens and a mirror for looking back at biblical studies generally in terms of what can um, the Museum of the Bible teach us about the discipline at large and particularly some of the dominant trends that we have in biblical studies. So, for example, the Museum of the Bible, um, the Bible could sort of be defined in numerous different ways, depending on who is uh, sort of answering that question. Uh, And in the context of the museum, it's very much the sort of Protestant Bible, which is an assumption that's often shared within kind of particularly Western biblical studies. Uh, so it's just something like that in terms of uh looking at the way that the museum's constructed and how that reflects back on the discipline. I thought that was quite fascinating. um Also, a great paper by Emily Gathergood uh, on the Acts of Andrew, which is not a text I sort of know loads about. So it's fun to uh, learn more about that. Um, and particularly the way that uh, the promise of salvation is sort of bound up with. Um, uh, the story of the birth of a child uh, in one of the uh, narratives in that text. Um, so that was really interesting to hear more about her research on that text.
3: Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I mean, I I, have, I listened to uh, Grace's and Chris's and Logan's papers and they were all uh, excellent, uh, each in their own way, outside of all of your, favorite, uh, your wonderful papers. Uh, the one that I think I keep thinking about was one that was called Jonah and the belly of the wicker man. And it was looking, it was approaching uh, the book of Jonah through the lens of folk horror. Um, uh, kind of a really niche movie trope. Uh, so, you know, there's the wicker man and uh, the witch finders general and another one um, that I can't remember what it's called, but I really, as a, I, I love film and cinema, but I really don't like horror because it scares me. Uh, and I get scared easily, and then I have nightmares, and then it's bad. So uh, I don't tend to like horror, uh, but I felt really compelled to listen to this paper because it was on Jonah, and I had presented on Jonah, um, and I really actually enjoyed it. It was like really fun to like uh, watch clips of this movie. It made me want to watch uh, The Wicker Man, um, whether I will or not, I don't know. Uh, but I, I really, I really appreciate this kind of discussion about using film to better understand the Bible and I thought you know that that was a really good uh, example of how you know a a, genre, a particular genre uh, could illuminate the text um, even if it was a genre that's you know not typically applied to the biblical text uh, such as folklore.
4: Yeah, I agree. Um, normally at SBL, I'd stick to things which are more traditionally within my wheelhouse. So uh, Johanna in literature normally has like four sessions and then the Writing Scientific Commentaries group has four, another four sessions. And by the time you, you end up with you know, four or five sessions from the two or three areas that I need to keep up with for my research and writing, uh, it, it doesn't leave a huge number of extra sessions to be able to, to work with. Uh, whereas because actually half of the sessions were in person and uh, not being streamed, I ended up um, going to a whole bunch of things which I wouldn't normally, uh, including indulging in my uh, religion and science fiction interests and religion and film interests or Bible and film interests. And so being able to to catch those sessions is, was actually quite uh, quite good and, and quite engaging. One of the ones that I, I found really interesting um, was the ongoing discussion of genre um, that kept popping up in uh, all sorts of different papers. Uh, So Brandon touched on genre uh, when we were thinking about whether or not genre is a a comedic or it has humour value, Uh, but then uh, it came up quite a few times when people were talking about uh, the genre of trauma and whether or not certain texts are uh, traumatic uh, because they are engaging in a, a genre engagement or whether or not they're traumatic just in and of themselves. Um, and so uh, several engagements there. And then since then, uh, because it's been recorded, interestingly, uh, this se- session wasn't supposed to be recorded, I don't think, um, but uh, the Enoch seminar recorded their review of Pharisees uh, by uh, Joseph Seavers and Amidur Levine. have actually popped it up on their Facebook. And so I've been able to, dive back into that i haven't finished watching it yet but um that's one of the benefits of um of online i guess is that uh, people just screen record and then share the screen recordings after the fact well i'm glad we uh, were able to do this uh, since we weren't
0: all together um you know for sbl it's been a lot of fun just to you know catch up and and uh, recap some of our experiences and uh, just really enjoy doing this next year hopefully in person see you all uh, in, in denver but thanks for this wonderful
4: conversation Thanks, John. Thanks, John. It's good to have a debrief.